Thanks, Aaron. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to New Day. And uh, this is week two of a four-week series where we're looking at the Old Testament. Who's excited that we're looking at the Old Testament? Some, some people are. Well, that's good. That's exciting. And uh, this week, we're going to finish up um, what we started last week in looking at the law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And uh, just a really quick summary for people who maybe weren't here last week. And so everyone's kind of caught up, and then we'll jump into the remaining four books that we have to look at this morning. So last week we just did a very, very brief overview of where the Old Testament came from, some of the major events that take place throughout the Old Testament. And uh, we looked at um, Genesis, the whole book of Genesis, and we looked at creation as the first act of um, Genesis, uh, that creation is good. And uh, we noticed that God, when he created, overcame the chaos of the world that was formless and it was empty. And so his acts of creation were very specific and that he formed and then he filled. And then we moved on and saw that the fall happened very quickly in the story of Genesis. That the fall comes in and the goodness of God's creation is ultimately corrupted and sin enters into the world. God really quickly begins his plan of restoration and he chooses Abraham and the descendants of Abraham And uh, that's going to be God's plan. And using the family of Abraham, that's going to be God's plan for restoration. And so that brought us to the end of Genesis. And three major themes that we saw in the book of Genesis. The first is descendants. So God had promised to Eve way back early in the book of Genesis that from your offspring, that the one would come who would crush the head of the serpent and bring this plan of restoration into being. And so Genesis is very obsessed with who is the descendant of Eve who will bring this restoration. And it, when it, the action changes to the family of Abraham and to Abraham himself in Genesis 12, then Genesis really focuses on the line of Abraham because we know this is where the restoration is going to come. Does anyone remember the big problem that we had at the end of Genesis? Does anyone remember that from last week? What was the big problem? They're in the wrong land. That's right. Three main promises were given to Abraham. The first is that he would have many descendants. The second is that they would occupy and live in the land of Canaan. And the third is that they would be blessed and they would be a blessing to all nations. Well, by the end of Genesis, only one of those three promises is even remotely being fulfilled. And that's the promise of many descendants. With, uh, with Jacob and his 12 sons, we begin to see the expansion of the family. And the family really grows towards the end of Genesis. But as we just noted, they're growing in the wrong land. And so throughout the rest of this morning and the rest of the books we look at, one of the major themes is how do we get this growing nation, this growing people from the land of Egypt, that's the wrong land, into the right land and the land of Canaan. So let's pray and let's just ask God to come and reveal his word to us this morning. And then we'll jump into the book of Exodus together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much that you've communicated to us clearly who you are and how you want us to live with each other and to live in a relationship with you and your good creation. Father, we just pray this morning, give us ears to hear your word and help us to know you better as a result of hearing your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, early Exodus, you would think, okay, as a turning point, 
It's a new book, and you would think that things are on the up and up and that things would start off really bright in the book of Exodus. The problem is the first two chapters of Exodus, things get worse before they get better. And that seems like, wow, a real twist in the road. And as you follow the story, it really is it's surprising. It's a setback. And you're thinking, how on earth is this going to get any worse for these descendants of Abraham? And how is this plan of restoration really going to work itself out? In what ways does it get worse? Well, as we've noted, they're already in the wrong land. But there's actually more that happens. Not only are they in the wrong land, they're also serving the wrong king. They're serving the wrong king. They're serving Pharaoh. And, and why is that? In Exodus 1, verse 8, you have this dramatic kind of twist in the story. And the twist is that a new Pharaoh rises up in Egypt that doesn't know Joseph. So as you remember at the end of, of Genesis, Joseph is really favored and he is, you know, Pharaoh gives him the ability to rule and they see through the famine together. Well, so much time has elapsed, a Pharaoh rises up. He doesn't know Joseph. And the implication behind that is that the Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph's God. And so this problem really develops in the early stages of the book of Exodus. Because the, uh, because the Israelites, because they're uh, ruled by Pharaoh, they're ruled in a way that they're slaves. And so there's, there's not a sense of prospering. They're in slavery, and there's much bitterness with this slavery. And as you read those opening chapters in Exodus, they are in bitter slavery, and there's a lot that they're just crying out to God for. They're also working, but they're working on the wrong building project. They're working on the wrong building. They're building storehouses for Pharaoh. They're building storehouses for Pharaoh. Instead of the descendants um, really prospering, like God said to Abraham, we see that the male children are being attacked viciously by Pharaoh. They're actually being attacked and their children are being wiped out by Pharaoh. And you can also see that they're, they have no human leader because Moses is not in Egypt by the end of chapter 2. It's the first two chapters, it just spirals. And you think, wow, how could this get any worse for the children of Israel who are in Egypt. And it really is a pattern of just they're in slavery and you're wondering how on earth is, are things going to get better? Well, amazingly, at the very end of chapter 2, verse 25, you have a verse that says that God heard the cries of his people and he remembered them. That God remembered his people. And actually in the Hebrew, that word remember is actually the word know. God knew his people. And it actually sets up this contrast between Pharaoh, who doesn't know Joseph and doesn't know Joseph's God. And then on the other hand, you have God who knows his people and knows their situation very, very well. And so this begins to play itself out because the people throughout the rest of Exodus and the law, they're going to get to know their God. They're going to get to know their God in stark contrast to Pharaoh, who has absolutely no knowledge of the God of the Israelites. So Moses, we've mentioned his name already a couple of times. Uh, We probably are familiar with the story. He was born into, uh, he was a Hebrew. He was born in the family line of Abraham's descendants. And he was miraculously delivered from the attack on the male children that Pharaoh was enacting on the Hebrew people. He was delivered. He was raised in the household of Pharaoh. 
and he saw the injustice that was being done against his people, against the Israelites, took matters of justice into his own hands, killed an an Egyptian slave driver, and uh, the word got out and he had to flee Egypt. And he spends a long period of his life actually in the land of Midian, away from his people and um, tending his father-in-law's sheep. It's during that time that God says, in that very famous story, the burning bush, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to bring out my people. And we are familiar with that story. And Moses protests and says, no, I don't want to. I can't do it. And God sends him anyway. And he sends him with help. He sends him with his brother, Aaron. And together they go to Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh uh, is not happy with the news because Moses comes and says, you know, the God of the Hebrews wants them to leave and he wants them to go and to worship him outside of Egypt. And Pharaoh is not happy and he resists because the people are actually working for Pharaoh and he needs them to stay and to build his storehouses. In, uh, in Hebrew, it's really interesting because the word for worship is also the same word as the word for work. And so you have the sense as there's a battle for kingship, really the battle here over the ten plagues is who is the rightful king of this people? Who is the rightful king of these descendants of Abraham? Because Pharaoh digs his heels in and he says, I am their king. And Moses comes to him and says, no, God is their king. And you have this battle over who do they belong to? And Moses comes and says, these people are supposed to leave Egypt, to leave slavery, and they're supposed to go and worship God. And Pharaoh says, no, these people belong to me, and they're supposed to work for me. Same word in Hebrew. And you have this incredible battle that is set up between both of them, with Moses and Aaron representing God. And we know the story of the ten plagues and how it gets increasingly worse as God begins to display his authority and begins to make it very clear to Pharaoh and the Egyptians who is in charge. And that last plague, the death of the firstborn, is what really triggers the Exodus event as they leave the slavery in Egypt and they head out into into the wilderness and as they leave slavery. It's this incredible story that is retold many, many times in the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers, as they write later in the history of Israel, refer back constantly to this Exodus event when the nation of Israel is formed through this event where they are freed from their slavery. And it's this incredibly dramatic story where in the middle of the night, having seen the protection because of the the Passover feast where they've killed a spotless lamb, the blood has been shed, put on the doorposts of their houses and the angel has passed over them and has not brought death, that they've been delivered into life. And as they've been brought and delivered into this life, the Egyptians in their grief and in their anguish say go. Pharaoh lets them go and they leave in a hurry. They leave in the middle of the night and they head off into the wilderness. And Pharaoh rapidly changes his mind and says, no, I need these people back. I can't let these people go. And so he begins to chase them. And we have this battle or the standoff rather at the Red Sea. And God miraculously delivers his people. They go through on dry ground and Pharaoh's army is washed away as they give chase. Who is the rightful king of this people? God makes it dramatically clear who is the right king. And the people are on their way to the land that is theirs. This is one of the most 
incredible turning points in the Old Testament. And it's a story that we should really keep in the back of our minds as we think through the rest of the Old Testament because the Old Testament writers themselves have this story as part of their national identity, as part of the framework of how they understand God, this great deliverer and the one who miraculously brings his people out of slavery and into relationship with him. The next major event is the people leave um, Egypt and they're in the wilderness and they go to Mount Sinai. And uh, Mount Sinai is where they begin to receive the law from God. And Mount Sinai is pictured, um, as you can see here, but in in the story, the people are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai and the mountain itself is shaking and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a dark cloud and God says, come close. And the people say, nope, it's too scary. And they're learning about who God is and they say, Moses, you go and talk to God. We're not going to go. And that is, uh, that's, a, that's an incredible event for the people to say, no, Moses, you go. So Moses goes up and he begins to receive the law. He's up there a long time. And the people look up at the mountain and they say, there's no way Moses could have made it. Nobody could survive up there as long as he did. And so we know that Moses is fine and he's receiving the law. But the people don't know that. And they actually turn to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we don't know what's happened to Moses but uh, we need another God. They don't say we need another leader so much as we need another God because obviously the one who brought us out of Egypt is on this mountain and we're not really sure what's going on. So they take the gold that they'd um, been given, that they'd plundered from the Egyptians, and they make a golden calf and Aaron makes it. And then they begin to worship it. So Moses comes down from the mountain and he says, he sees this idolatry. He sees that the people have turned their back on God and he stops what's going on and he he grinds the golden calf and he make into dust and he makes them drink it and it's bitter and it's just this whole scene of like wow it's things are really up in the air at this point at this point it's really unclear now we know because we can read the rest of the story but at this point in the story it's very unclear as to whether god is going to actually be the god of this people because Right in the moment where he's giving Moses the law and telling the people what the relationship, what their relationship with him should be like is the exact moment that they're turning their back on him and worshiping the golden calf. And so, so Moses pleads, he goes back up the mountain and he pleads with God. He said, please let, you know, just don't abandon us. You know, please remember all the promises that you gave. And God is so furious with his people. He's like, Moses, I would, you know, I will start with you. I'll start over with you. And Moses says, no, you can't do that. Remember everything you've said. And it's like Moses knows God so well. He kind of knows where God's vulnerable. <laughs> because he knows that God puts a lot, of, a lot of stake in his name and in his reputation. And Moses says, if you start with me and you wipe this people out, then what are the Egyptians going to think? So God changes his mind if he does that. and he recasts the tablets of stone with the law, and Moses goes back down, having negotiated that God is going to be their God, and that he will lead them. It's this amazing story. It's really the pinnacle of certainly the book of Exodus, but it's really a high point in, um, in the law that Moses is able to negotiate that. The remaining um, part of Exodus is uh, more revelation 
um, in the form of the law. And it's a lot of the last part of Exodus is actually to do with the tabernacle, that special tent of meeting where God's presence was later to come, where the people would would meet with God and where the uh, the rituals of sacrifice would be the centerpiece of the Israelite life. And you can see a, a, a reconstruction of it. So God gave very detailed instructions in Exodus, chapters and chapters worth of instructions of how to put this tabernacle together and everything that was involved in the furnishings for it. And then you see that the people uh, made everything in accordance with what God had said. At the very, very end of Exodus is a scene where God's presence comes in a cloud and it descends on that tabernacle. And God's presence is with his people. So we said some of the things that were kind of you know, not right at the start of Exodus, how the first couple of chapters things started to cycle and um, the crisis deepened. Well, where are we at the end of Exodus? What has happened by then? What kind of resolution do we have? Well, we see that the people are delivered so that they have the right king. So instead of Pharaoh, now God is their king and he is in charge. Uh, Instead of um, slavery, there is a sense in which, and bitterness, there's a sense in which the people are, are happy and there's joy and they voluntarily give in order for the tabernacle to be built. They voluntarily give of what they have. So instead of slavery, there's voluntary giving. They're working on the right building project. They're not building Pharaoh's storehouses. They're building the tabernacle for God's presence to come. They're growing as a nation, even as they're in the wilderness. And they're not being oppressed by Pharaoh who's trying to kill them. And we see Moses in his position as leader of the nation. Just to say a couple of words about Moses, he has an incredibly special relationship with God. And he knew God face to face. says that Moses spoke to God as a man speaks with his friend, that his face would glow with the glory of the Lord. Moses received the law. He's considered the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. So next week we're going to look at the prophets in more detail. But every single one of those prophets was nowhere compared to Moses. Moses in the Old Testament is the pinnacle of what it is to be a prophet and to be in relationship with God. You see in the New Testament as the Pharisees talk to Jesus and as they debate back and forth that Moses' name comes up a lot. And the reason for that is because he was seen as the example of what it was to be a prophet. Some of the major themes in the book of Exodus, deliverance from Egypt, the introduction of Moses, the giving of the law, establishing God as king, and also the presence of God. So we haven't really talked about this very much up to this point. We've talked about some of the problems that the fall has caused and corruption of sin. But the major problem that hasn't got been addressed up to this point in the biblical story in the Old Testament is the presence of God with his people. Adam and Eve had close relationship with God. He walked with them in the garden and talked with them. And that was totally corrupted and destroyed by sin. And nowhere in Genesis and early Exodus do you have the sense of God trying to get back to that place of being close with his people and his presence being with them. But at the very end of Exodus, you see the cloud of his presence comes to the tabernacle and the people have God's presence right there with him one more time. And so this fundamental problem of the presence of God being reestablished with his people begins to be addressed in a very real way by the end of the book of Exodus. And it's also interesting that um, the pattern on how the tabernacle is built, God um, tells them to um, form the tabernacle and the people respond and they form it according to his instructions and then he fills it with his presence as an echo of the biblical pattern where God forms and fills 
and you see that the people form it and God fills it and a picture of what it's like to partner with God and his creation intention that we work with him hand in hand as he's made relationship together. However, by the end of Exodus, they're still not in the right land. And that becomes one of the driving themes for the rest of what we'll talk about this morning and these uh, next three books that we're going to talk about very, very quickly. How do we get the people from the wilderness to the right land? The book of Leviticus is next. has to do a lot with, um, with some of the things that we find most difficult in the Old Testament. That's the laws and the purity regulations and the clean and the unclean. And just to set the scene for, for Leviticus, the people are camped at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And Moses uh, goes to the tent of meeting and he meets with God and he receives the law. He receives the book of Leviticus. There's actually only two events that are recorded happening. So there's only really two things, incidents that are recorded as happening in the book of Leviticus. The rest of it is all that what Moses hears from God. So if you're trying to think about the book of Leviticus, picture the people camped at Mount Sinai. They're there for almost an entire year receiving instruction for God, from God. And as they're camped there, Moses goes to the tent and he receives the book of Leviticus from God and he records it. The book covers... Um, Many different things, but one, a few of the things that it really um, deals with in particular are uh, establishing uh, the offerings, the different types of offerings that the Israelites were to bring to God, including offerings for sin and guilt. It also establishes Aaron as the high priest and the tribe of Levi and their role as priests and those who would administer the religious sacrifices. Chapters 11 to 15 talk about the difference between what is clean and what is unclean. Chapter 16 is, talks about the Day of Atonement, that most holy day in the year, whenever the sins of the people would be atoned for, when Aaron the high priest and the sacrifice that was given would go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and make atonement for the sin of the people. Chapter 17 to 26 talk about holy living and how the people are to live out what God is giving them. I think when we read this, it just it seems so dif- difficult for us to wrap our minds around what it was really like. And I think sometimes we aren't really sure exactly what God is requiring of the people and why he would say what he would say. Some of the major themes are the holiness of God is really revealed. So there's other parts of scripture where we think about God as very, very close, as very, very near, as, as one who is so close to us. And yet in Leviticus, you have that other side of God where he's, in one sense, distant. He's, he's away from us. We cannot be close with God in the sense of we are sinful and he is holy. And you have that sense of clean and unclean, what is profane and what is holy. And God is establishing all of this in the life of Israel. You have the idea of substitutionary sacrifice. We sang this morning about um, the lamb that was slain. Well, that imagery goes back to the Passover event, and it's talked about, too, this imagery of sacrifice and blood being shed so that there can be forgiveness of sins, so that relationship with God can be established once more. The work of the priests is outlined, and also we have the sense of God's continuing presence with his people and the blessings that can come from his presence. The concept of division is also... Um, in the book of Leviticus. And I think this can be really hard for us to get our minds around because, like I said, we like to think of God as being close, of God being right there with us. We even have, you know, the spirit inside us. We talked about, or we sang about this morning. 
And so this idea where God is saying, you know, there's actually separateness and division can be difficult for us, I think, to get our, get our minds around. But what God is actually doing in the book of Leviticus is establishing his sense of order. Remember that God is in creation overcoming chaos. He's overcoming that chaos that sin brings, that, um, that he wants to make sure that there is order and he wants to make sure that his pattern for how to live is established. And what you find in the book of Leviticus is God makes separation clean from unclean, holy from profane. Even within the tabernacle, there's divisions of how far you can go. And it's really another echo of creation. So we didn't really talk about this last week. But as God forms and fills, he does it in a particular way. He separates things that don't belong together. So he separates light from dark. He separates the sea from the land. And he begins to really pattern things like that. Where in the order of what God does, there are times and there are, uh, there are ways in which things that don't belong together need to be separated. The book of Leviticus is really God documenting for the Israelites how that separation is to work. That they understand what is holy and what is not holy. That they really understand what is clean and what is unclean. And that they really begin to be able to understand how that all works itself out. Some of the... Um, so how that really plays itself out ultimately is what does it look like for the people as they follow God to bring this concept of God's holiness into their everyday life and practice. And God is really wanting the people to get a hold of that and to understand that as they um, live out their life. In the book of Numbers, we can really one way we can really easily understand this book is that it's a book that um, talks about the idea of journey and the idea of journey and journeying. So the book of Numbers really outlines and really begins to push these people uh, in the direction of Canaan, in the direction of their promised land. So the book of Leviticus, we kind of stand still in time. So the people are at Sinai. They're not moving any closer to the land of Canaan. They're receiving. They're in this mode where they're receiving the law. In the book of Numbers, they actually begin to move forward. So about... You know, halfway through the book of Exodus, the people end up camping at Mount Sinai. And in the, as we read through the Bible, they actually don't leave Mount Sinai until Numbers 10. So from about mid-Exodus until Numbers 10, the people are in one place, receiving the law, finding out what God is like and what he requires of them. The remainder of, of uh, Numbers, we have different journeys. So the first part, they're at Mount Sinai, and then they move. And they move to a place called Kadesh. And then they're at Kadesh for a while, and then they move again. They move from Kadesh to Moab. And then we have some incidents recorded where they're at Moab. And when they get to Moab, they're right on the edge of Canaan. Right on the edge of Canaan. And they are getting ready to occupy the land. Now, Numbers, I mean, why is it called Numbers? I mean, why isn't it called, like, Journey or In the Wilderness or anything like that? There are a couple of times in the book of Numbers where things are recorded. There's some numbers in there where the tribes are accounted for. So early in the book, they take a census and then towards the very end, they take another census. And what that does is it helps to establish and form the nation into a bit more of organized in an organized way. God's really beginning to say, "Okay, whenever you occupy, you're going to do it in the form of tribes and tribes are going to go in and take different areas. And God's really beginning to shape them purposefully into a nation that's able to occupy And throughout the law, we have this transition of going from just the family of Abraham and that line to God forms a nation. And you really begin to see that happen in the book of Numbers, where God begins to take these people who've come out of um, Egypt. 
and these descendants, and he begins to form them into a people. Some of the major events that happened in the book of Numbers, uh, one that we might be familiar with is where uh, one person is chosen from each of the 12 tribes and they're sent into the land to spy the land out and figure out how they're going to conquer it. And so those 12 spies are sent out and and all 12 come back and they say, it's just like God said, it is an abundant land. It is an incredibly abundant land. And God had not just said, you're going to go to this land, but he had also promised that this land would be abundant. So the 12 come back and they say, yeah, it's really abundant. That's the good news. The bad news is there's no way we can conquer it. <laughs> and 10 of the 12 said, no, we can't, we can't take this land. And two of the 12 said, yeah, we need to go in and we need to conquer. And so God saw what the people, that the people were swayed by the ten who were afraid rather than the two who had faith. And God said, this generation, this people is not ready to take the land. He said, they're not conquerors. They're not going to be able to go in and take this land. They're not going to take this land because they still think like slaves. And in fact, you actually see in the book of Numbers over and over again, they say, if only we'd stayed in Egypt. If only we'd done this. If only we'd done that. They crumble and they complain to Moses all the time. And God said, this generation, they're not going to be taking the land. And so they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire first generation in the slavery mindset until they, until they die. And it's this incredible journey for them because really that journey should have only taken a couple of weeks. You could make that journey in a couple of weeks. And instead, it took them 40 years. And God teaches the people what it is to go in and conquer the land. And so you can see in the top left, they left Egypt and they wandered. You can see Mount Sinai at the bottom. And then you can see in the top right, Jerusalem. And that's ultimately the direction that they're going to head. And by the end of Numbers, they, are, they start at Sinai. And by the end of Numbers, they're in the top corner, around about where number five is on that screen. And so... This journey that should have taken a few weeks takes 40 years because this generation that thought like slaves that aren't going to be able to conquer the land, that generation needs to pass and the next generation needs to come. The ones who will be able to go, the ones who will be able to conquer the land. The idea of journey is huge because they actually move to within within the edge of the land of Canaan, the promised land. Some themes that emerge in the book of Numbers, the first is God's provision and faithfulness to the Israelites in the desert. God miraculously sustains the people in the wilderness. Think about the wilderness, there's nothing there, and God sustains this vast people, this growing nation, throughout their 40 years in the wilderness. In contrast, you have the unfaithfulness of the people. God is incredibly faithful to his people, and they are incredibly unfaithful to him. And yet, God continues to push them in the direction they're supposed to go, continues to move towards fulfilling his promises. We also see the formation of the, of the people of Israel into a nation that are ready for conquest. And God is very clear that this people needs to be able to go in and take the land. And then we also have this growing sense of anticipation that the occupation of Canaan and heading into that land that was promised to them hundreds of years ago, that that's right around the corner. And as you read through the numbers and as we get into Deuteronomy, we have this growing sense of it's about to happen. They are about to enter into this promised land. It brings us to the book of Deuteronomy. And the name Deuteronomy gives us the idea of second law second law. And it's not the sense that God gives another law on top of the one that he gave the first time. 
at Mount Sinai. It's actually the idea that there's a retelling of the law and a reaffirmation of the law. So when you read Deuteronomy, there's a sense in which you're like, oh, I know this story. You know, it talks about some of the journeys that they've had in the wilderness. It talks about, you know, the Ten Commandments are, are listed in there again. And there's different laws that are told again. And you're like, I, you know, I've been through this and I've seen this before. And the situation is they're on the edge of the land of Canaan. And Moses speaks to the people. And this is Moses' farewell speech. Because Moses will not be crossing the border and going into the land of Canaan. And at the very, very end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses dies and leadership is transferred to Joshua. But Joshua has been trained for this moment because if you read through carefully, you'll notice Joshua's name a lot before you get to Deuteronomy. In fact, it was Joshua who said to Moses as they were coming down the mountain whenever they had the Ten Commandments, and he, he heard this noise in the camp and he said, it sounds like there's war in the camp. It sounds like the people are fighting. And Moses said, no. He said, they're not fighting. He said, there's a party. And he gets down and he sees the people worshiping the golden calf. So Joshua was right there. You'll notice a lot of times that Moses is mentioned going to the tent of meeting and spending time with God. And Joshua is there. And sometimes Moses leaves and Joshua stays at the tent. And so for a long, long time, Joshua is prepared for this moment when he will begin to lead the people into occupying the land. There's also a sense in Deuteronomy where you're, you're hearing the story and you're hearing it from Moses' perspective. And it's really interesting to see what Moses chooses to talk about and what he chooses to say. One thing he really says is, when you enter the land of Canaan, make sure to obey God. There's going to be a lot of temptations in that land. There's going to be a lot of other gods to chase after. There's going to be other people who are going to try to sway you in one direction or another. They're going to try to tempt you to be unfaithful to God who's brought you this far. And over and over, he says, be obedient to God, be faithful to God, make sure you follow God, know what it is, know your identity, know who you are as Israelites, know how God has formed this nation, remember the things that he's done, because when you go and occupy this land, you're going to need to be very careful to follow after him. So those are the five books. What can we say as a, as a kind of a summary about this section of the Old Testament, about the law? I think first it helps us see how God established the nation of Israel and then how he was really careful to outline their lives in the sense of, you know, he was really concerned with the details of their lives and how they were to live in relationship to him. It's the story of how God really forms this people. He forms his people and he begins to give them promises and then he begins to fulfill those promises. Third, we see that the law as it's given really is the basis for the relationship that this nation is going to have with God. And we're really going to see this, I think, next week as well, because as the prophets come on the scene and as history moves forward for this nation, we're going to see that the law is like the lens. It's the way that they see everything about themselves, how they see and understand God and how they move forward as a nation. The law also shows the reality of sin. And as we look at the uh, sacrifices that are required and as we look at everything that people have to go through, 
we actually get a sense in a very real way of how pervasive sin is and how deep it goes into our everyday lives and how much it takes to actually overcome sin and get to a point where relationship is restored with God. If you're reading the law and you're saying, wow, this really is, is, is incredible, the amount of detail and what these people have to do to bridge relationship with God once more, you get a sense, a really profound sense of the depth of sin. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul really wrestles with this question of what's the place of the law for those who believe in Christ, especially for people who were not Christians but came from a Jewish um, background and past and they'd followed all of these laws. And he says in Galatians 3 that the law was temporary. And so it was a very real part of God's plan, his plan of restoration, but it was designed to be a temporary marker and to show us the reality of sin and the deep, deep need for a permanent sacrifice, for one who would come and bridge that gap, for one who would come and put an end to the cycle of sacrifices, but one who would be able to come and make that permanent sacrifice and bridge humanity back to God. Finally, I want to challenge you in how you think about the law to kind of see it as a means of God's grace. So it may seem a little unusual to put the, you know, the word law and grace together in the same sentence. But God, when he gives the law, demanding and as exacting as it is, actually is very gracious. Because he says, if you do this, then this will be the result. If you're faithful to do this thing, then you will be blessed. If you are unfaithful, then you will be cursed. And God very clearly lays out what the expectations are on the people and what will happen, both positive and negative. And the other cultures at that time, they all worshipped gods. They all had national gods. And you would sacrifice to the God if you wanted to see a good harvest. You would sacrifice to the God of harvest. And you would say, please give me a good harvest. And you would maybe sacrifice you know, some of, your, some of your animals or some of the grain that you'd had from the year before. You would sacrifice something of worth. But the priest might say to you, you need to sacrifice your child to really ensure you'll have a good sacrifice or a good harvest. And you might sacrifice your child, but you had no sense of if that was enough. You had no sense if that was enough. Is that enough to restore relationship and give favor in the eyes of that God. And so when the God of Israel comes in and says, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, that didn't start in Psalm 103. God told that to Moses in Exodus when Moses was pleading to see God's presence. When God walked past, what did Moses hear? Compassionate, slow to anger, loving. And you see that throughout the law. God tells them exactly what they need to do and what the result will be. And I think that we imagine that the law was this incredible burden and the people hated it and they didn't like it because we would hate it and we wouldn't like it. But I think in reality, in many ways, it was part of their freedom to know if we do this, God will bless us and we will have a relationship with God. And I don't think the law was the burden that we imagine it to be. I think that it was for a time in history, and we don't live in that time in history anymore. But God used it graciously to establish what he is like and how people are to relate to him. And that hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. And we do have more freedom today to just run into the presence of God and confess our sin.
and how thankful we are because we don't have to go through all of these different procedures and sacrifices. But it makes us appreciate the one who did satisfy them all even more. It makes us appreciate all the more what Christ has done to restore relationship. Next week, we're going to look at the prophets and see how they take this law and they interpret it over and over again and weave it into the life of Israel. And so we'll look through the prophets. We'll look through a little bit more of the history of Israel and see how they begin to occupy the promised land.